I am milling about with Spencer Schneider, and he's the author of Manhattan Cult Story, my unbelievable true story of sex, crimes, chaos, and survival. Hi, Spencer. Hi, Robin. Nice to see you. So we have to tell everybody how we know each other. We can't hide this. Can't hide it. 40 years ago, we went to the same sleepaway camp, Camp Olympus. Yep. So quick shout out to all the peeps for Camp Olympus. Totally. Yeah. We were there many years ago in Parksville, New York. Crazy. And I want you to know that we have to thank my girls, my Olympus girls, because they told me about your book. And we're all reading it like crazy and talking about it like crazy. So I said, I've got to talk to Spencer. Great. I'm so happy to be here. I'm thrilled to reconnect with you. And I'm grateful to hear everybody's reading it and talking about it. That makes me happy. So let's start from the beginning. Sure. Here you are, a nice Jewish boy. You become an attorney. And then all of a sudden, you join this crazy cult for 23 years. Right. So tell me the story, how that all sort of started. You know, like you said, I'm a nice Jewish boy from Long Island. I had every privilege I could, you know, ask for. Great family, great friends. I had a great education. Um, went to law school in Manhattan. Had a great job and, you know, friends and, you know, a happy, successful life. There was nothing particularly, I would say, that left me vulnerable or open to joining a cult for sure. I mean, I would never consider joining anything. You know, I mean, I wasn't even in a frat in college. You know, I was like super independent and I wasn't looking for anything. But I, I think there were two things that were going on in my life. I was working really hard and didn't have much going on in my life beyond my job. And I also was very um, interested in doing other things in my life. So I was playing in a band. I was spending more time on vacations and doing what I can to be out of New York and whatnot. And then in any event, I met a guy who um, was a bartender at the bar where my band was playing. And about a month or so of pursuing me to talk to me and meet me and whatnot, told me that he was a member of a group that was meeting twice a week. It was an esoteric group studied Gurdjieff and Spensky and helped him in his life. And this was a really smart guy. I mean, did you know who these people were that he was even talking about? No, I never heard of Gurdjieff or Spensky. <laughs> you? Have you ever heard of them? No, that would have been a red flag for me. I would have went running in the other direction. <laughs> oh, well, I did. I mean, I said, this is crazy. I have absolutely no interest in this. And I just left the conversation. But I also felt guilty because he was hurt. You know, I could see this thing was really like a big deal for him. You're like a people pleaser, would you say, Spencer? Not really. No. Not, not unless I'm like super close with someone, but generally I don't care really what people think too much. I mean, I wrote this book about all these crazy things, so I, I really don't care. It doesn't bother me. But I did feel guilty because I knew him enough that I could see he was really bummed out and I was pretty strong, harsh. So I don't think I wanted to please him so much as I felt, you know, let's give him a, a chance. You know, I really didn't hear him out. So he said, why don't you meet someone else from the group? And I said, sure. It was uh, this woman who was a very attractive and very super smart and also professional, worked at a bank, 
two things happened in that meeting. One was they had this like really deep, like friendship. I couldn't tell if they were sleeping each with each other or not. Did you have a crush on her too? Not really. You know, she was attractive like you. I mean, you know, I like attractive people, you know, but I don't need to, you know, jump on their bones or anything like that. It was nothing like that, but put it this way. She didn't look like she was like a far away gaze and, you know, kooky. You know, she looked normal. That was the thing. But the attraction to me was that they had this bond together that was very unusual, you know, like really close. And it was like, hmm, this sounds interesting, you know, and they seem nice. And also I missed the intellectual pursuit of college and whatnot. So it was kind of fun to have whatever they were studying. Bottom line is I went to a meeting. It was a lot of people who looked like me. It was a lot of white people. And they were very wealthy, right? You had to have like a lot of money to join this cult. Yeah. I mean, they asked that people needed to be making, I can't remember in today's dollars. It wasn't huge amounts, but it was like a hundred grand, you know, enough to be able to, as a young person without a family, you know, live a reasonable life and not miss three to $400 a month, which I didn't. Yeah. And that's what they were looking for. They were looking for people with disposable income. And they were also looking for people who thought they would find it interesting to talk about philosophy and, you know, current events, personal relationships and whatnot. And it was all presented in a very inviting way, serious, but there was not much there to keep me going, except that I did have a crisis the first month of my stay. I had agreed to stay for a month. You were able to sort of get out after that first month. It was like a trial period. Yeah. Well, you can get out whenever you want. I mean, it's not locked up. It's just going to meetings twice a week. Plenty of people don't go back after the first night and plenty of people go for a year or two or three, not to get too much ahead, but I haven't met a single person who hasn't had some lasting memory, negative memory or trauma from this group. There is without exception, extremely harmful group, very harmful, very tricky. They really get under your skin. Gee, I met a woman who was there one night and she can't forget it. This was 30 years ago. So Spencer, what was the most traumatic thing that happened to you? And then why did you stay? Stayed beyond a month because I had a crisis, which is I lost my job and they were extremely helpful and supportive in a way that nobody in the rest of my life was at that time. They were going overboard, obviously, but they were very supportive in my new venture, which was to start my own firm. And I began to feel somewhat indebted to them in the sense that here they were not so much indebted, but I felt like they were building my confidence. And that's kind of what cults do in the beginning. They, you know, or any abusive people, they'll sort of just build you up. And once you become dependent, then the trauma starts, then the abuse starts. And that started, you know, slowly after a year, but it's balanced. So, I mean, do you want me to rush to the end of the most traumatic thing that happened to me? Yeah, let's touch on that. Then we'll go back and forth. We'll get to everything. We're milling about. We're milling about. We're milling about. about. There's no order. There's no specific order. Really? I, we're just chatting. <laughs> just chat. All right. The worst, the most traumatic thing. I mean, I would say at the end of it, and look, I was there a long time and there was a lot of reasons I stayed. I would say the first half of the 23 years, I really felt I was getting more than was being taken from me. 
I love the community. I loved the people I met. I admired the leaders, even the crazy, crazy woman who uh, founded this named Sharon Gaines, who was uh, really demented, but also extremely charming. That's what leaders can be. They're like wolves in sheep clothing. Absolutely. Yeah. I think if I had met her the first night, I would not have stayed, but we didn't meet her for a year into it. And at that point, the leaders who we already had were sort of like underneath her. It was very hierarchical and they showed her great deference and love. And that's sort of like, huh, hmm, maybe we should give her more of a chance, even though she's strange and, and whatnot. Until she asked you to have sex with your stepdaughter. Well, that was a long time later. <laughs> I know, but still, Spencer, shake you. I already shook myself. Are you saying, well, why didn't I leave at that point? I didn't even consider it at that point. I think it's pretty normal if you're brainwashed or in an abusive situation to find it difficult to leave. I was very dependent upon this group for my family, my wife was in it. There were great consequences if I left without her. And my business was very tied up in it. There would be great consequences if I left the group because people who left were shunned. So if, for argument's sake, you were shunned, what would be the big deal about that? I'm just sort of trying to play devil's advocate. I'm trying to understand that mindset. If I had left, and this was not just me, I mean, there were hundreds of people in the group. Let's say they were married to somebody in the group and many people were. If one person left, the leader would encourage the spouse who stayed to leave them. I didn't want my marriage to end. A lot of people stayed for that reason. Sharon, the leader, was very involved in arranging marriages, switching relationships. She arranged private adoptions. You know, there was forced labor. There was, you know, physical abuse. I you know, was in sort of fight club situation. I know. I read that part. I was like, oh my goodness. Right, right. He broke well, your nose, right? Yeah. But this was not like in any way, this was not voluntary in any way. I, I was trapped, really. I mean, in my mind. I mean, I know people who read it say, oh, geez, well, you know, there's a red flag and you cringe. You know, it's like, oh, this happened. I think a lot of people, and I hope people, when they read it, will say, oh, shit, you know, that could happen to me. You know, I could see how something like this might happen under very specific circumstances. Well, yeah, it certainly is a cautionary tale in so many ways. And I would have never been picked because I just asked too many questions. <laughs> right? You know, I, I mean, probably I did too. I ask a lot of questions. I'm not gullible or anything like that. But anybody can be, you know, tricked or led in a hoax. Um, no one is susceptible. And I think the more inquisitive, the more questions you ask in a certain way. Didn't the group frown upon you asking questions? No, you could ask as many questions as you wanted. But at a certain point, you felt, put it this way, in the beginning, you could ask whatever you wanted. But as it went on longer and longer, you asked less because you were afraid. And it's a, it's a very slow process. It's not like if I went the first night and they were telling me this or that, I would have like never have gone back. There was no experience like that. Like it depended on the night. Like I know people who went in one night, they were yelling at a woman because she had an abortion and they were very against abortions and they wanted to, 
you know, have people give up their children for adoption. And that would, that's a pretty ugly sight. You know, I didn't witness that anything like that for, I don't know, a few years. So when did it start getting bad for you? And then when did you realize, when did you have your sort of aha moment? Well, there were a couple of things. I had questioned the fact that it was secretive. I mean, we were not allowed to speak about it to anyone. And in fact, I didn't for 23 years. Spouses didn't tell spouses if the other one was not in. But I felt, oh, you know what? I'll keep this a secret. You know, this is something unique. I'll keep it to myself. What's the big deal? The real reason was they didn't want to be discovered because they had been accused of being a cult in San Francisco and then came to New York and there was no internet then. There was no possible way to ever figure this out. There was no way. In fact, I- And they were stealing, right? They were stealing, essentially. They were stealing your money for their own good. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 Again, we thought this was a legitimate, you know, organization. So- the first real red flag was when they started to ask us to do recruiting and to bring in other people. And we spent a lot of time doing it. We spent money trying to meet people like strangers and befriend them. And that was a big sort of guilt trip to ask us to do that. And a lot of people left the group. I didn't. I, again, felt, gee, I'm getting so much in terms of, you know, my business was... And I wasn't working with people in the group at the time. Later on, I was. And my biggest client was in the group. But at that time, I just felt, gee, like they're giving me like the confidence to do this. And if I stop going, it's sort of like pulling the air out of it. Or so you thought. Or so you were led to believe. Oh, yeah. Yeah. This was not a rational thought. None of these are rational thoughts. Look, it's the way the mind works on these things. Like in the abusive relationship, and it's not unlike couples where a wife or a husband with an abusive husband, you know, wives are led, you know, to have very little self-esteem. And even though they're having a miserable situation, they feel they can't do any better than that. Tell me, Spencer, how Sharon arranged your marriage. How did that all work? It wasn't like, here, you're going to marry this person. Here's a gun to your head. But the context of it was that she regulated all kinds of relationships uh, among people, just business, friendships, and that we were not allowed to, you know, fraternize outside of the group. If you wanted to date someone in the group, you had to ask them for permission and whatnot. And people did this, you know. At one point, she suggested that I date who's now my ex-wife. and. You know, this person was extremely influential and I liked this woman, uh, Beth, you know, I liked her a lot. I think we would have been great friends. We might've had a successful marriage, but for the fact that there was another person in bed with us, not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> I know, I know you mean, yeah. She was just always involved in all aspects. There was nothing off limits for her, including at a certain point, suggesting that instead of my wife getting pregnant because of her age, she was concerned that she was too old to have a baby. She said, well, why don't you just impregnate her daughter? Which I thought was a bizarre, insane idea. And I told her so. I'm sorry, I have to interrupt you one quick second. Yeah. You have 
any unfinished business with this Sharon Gans person that you would like to say here and now for basically ruining your life? I'm sorry. Well, no, because I you say it all in the book. And um, despite my involvement, you know, I am extremely happy. And I had to do a lot of work when I got out. You have no ill feelings towards her at all. Oh, I have tremendous ill feelings towards her. Okay, so yeah, get it out. I want to hear it. You know, I mean, I there's not more to say. I mean, she was a very uh, evil person, very diseased, and she, like you said, ruined a lot of lives. I mean, I think I'm lucky in the sense that I did get um, help after I left. You know, I was in bad shape. I had professional help. A lot of people in traumatic situations don't do that, and I think that's one of the reasons why I'm one of the only people to have talked about it, the first book about it. And I hear from people every day, emails, texts, Instagram, people contact me who were in the group 30 years ago for a couple of weeks. And they're like, thank you. You know, you explain things. One of the leader's children reached out to me and said, you know, I hope Sharon is in hell, you know, twirling on a rotisserie. I'm so gratified that, you know, I could just lay out the facts of who she was and I think that's the best way to deal with it. Have you had backlash from the book? I mean, I know that you've opened a can of worms. Like every day there's a new story about I know. your book or somebody suing them or something. I think you've opened these, this can of worms. I hope I open a lot of cans. You know, I mean, they are still operating and they really hurt people bad. They're a dangerous group and they um, haven't stopped. I mean, they, they still recruit people. It's a little different. Like the kinds of people I think they're recruiting now are very vulnerable. I think generally everyone is in a tough spot the last few years. You know, if you're offering like this sort of self-improvement thing now, I mean, I think people might be more open to it because people are, are languishing. You know, it's very hard. Yeah, that's interesting. Talk about the whole recruitment manual that you put down in the book. I earmarked that because I just found that so fascinating. Oh, good. I'm glad. You know, they had very specific rules or guidelines on how to recruit people and they wanted it done a very specific way. It was done to simultaneously vet and lure people into the group. They wanted you to vet people and find out very specific things about them. So as to mostly make sure that they wouldn't be a threat to writing about or disclosing the group. So they wanted trustworthy people. And they also wanted people who were successful and who were vulnerable in the sense that something in their life was missing, that they wanted more meaning in their life than just, you know, working and whatnot, which I guess everybody does to some degree, you know, but they were very specific about it. They wanted to have this air of mystery about the whole thing. And by the end, hopefully having people beg to be brought to this group that they didn't even really understand why people were talking in certain ways. And there would be hints like I'm in this group where I study, but I can't tell you about it now. And this very passive aggressive, manipulative way of talking to people. And I sucked at it. I just couldn't do it. It was extremely deceptive. They still do the same thing to this day. How did you shun your family? How were you convinced to not keep in touch with them? 
Well, I did keep in touch with them and I did keep in touch with other friends, but mentally I felt separate from them and that my real family were the people in the group. And so I never really stopped seeing them, but it was definitely a, a wedge that they create, like this psychological wedge. And oh, I, yeah, they don't want you having anything to, I mean, I remember the passage in the book where Sharon Gans was like, no, we, your family's not important. You need to lose them. Right. And I think certain people, she would, you know, instigate situations where people didn't talk to their families, but those were usually situations where the families weren't living in New York. But I think people who were in New York, she was more um, strategic about it because she knew I was close with my family, so to speak. So sometimes she said, oh, you need to see your mom more. Or sometimes she'd say, only oh, talk to her once a year and, you know, went back and forth. She would really screw with married families, people who were married outside the group every combination, you know, leave your husband, be nicer to your husband, have a boyfriend on the side. It was like a sadistic game that she played. Also, how did she convince you and others to build her homes like in Montana at the plaza for free? Yeah. I mean, it was very coercive. It was presented as, oh, this is good for you. Um, this will help you evolve. But the idea was that if you didn't do it, you know, you suffer harm, serious harm in the sense that you could be thrown out, which you didn't want because like you may have psychological damage occur to you or you, you know, have financial losses. Like I thought I would, people could be berated publicly if they didn't participate in, in these projects. And so it was extremely coercive including like when she told women to have sex with particular men in the group, just in front of her. And they would do that. That was not voluntary. Did you? No, I was not. I was not. I mean, she, my marriage, but no. Right, right. So I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. You come out of this cult and you now have to get your life together. Were there any like feelings of, of missing, you know, like missing what you had? In the weirdest way, it's a great question. It was entirely irrational, but I had the feeling that my best days were behind me in the sense that I thought that the group gave me this sort of power and knowledge that I would have nowhere else. And the days, you know, I needed to get out because of various circumstances. I just needed mentally to get out that the best days were behind me. And that was not a true belief. As far as, you know, really, what do I miss about it? Nothing. Most of the people I liked in it have left and I have some relationships with them, but not really tight, you know, friendly. So what's life like for you now? It's great. I'm happier than ever. I have a wonderful son. That was something that came actually from the group. I would say that's the one great thing that came and he's a terrific guy. I have found that the most important things in life are not like, you know, this uh, status or money and things like that, but what brings me real happiness are like, you know, my friends and family. I started swimming. Uh, I was swimming camp. I was a swimmer in camp. I remember. But I picked that up again and, you know, I'm a marathon swimmer. I got healthy again, physically, mentally. I think I'm stronger for it. I figured out uh, about resilience. And felt very compelled to tell the story, which I think has been really good for me and for other people, because it's just shined a light on these people, on this very strange circumstance that went on. 
Absolutely. Spencer, ah, thank you so much. It's so good to see Welcome. you. And what a wonderful read. I recommend it highly. Oh, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. And I'm waiting for the Netflix special. I think that's going to happen soon. There are people who are interested in it. We'll see. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Thank you again. Thank you. Take good care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Always news. Always refreshing. Always candid. Always billing about. Robin Milling delivers what celebrities are saying to you. To you. To you. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.